Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. Public policy touches every part of our lives. Where our tax dollars go, where we can afford to live, and what opportunities our children receive in school. In this episode, Dr. Ralph Martiri explains how the Center for Budget and Tax Accountability is taking on systemic challenges through policy reform. Ralph Martiri is the Arthur Robloff Professor of Public Policy at Roosevelt University. He also serves as the executive director of the CTBA, a bipartisan think tank. You may have read his columns in your local newspaper or heard him on the news. Ralph and I talk about how he got his start in public policy and the CTBA's evidence-based approach to social justice. This episode is the first in a three-part series on their work to address racial and economic disparities. I hope you'll enjoy. Ralph, in addition to your work as Arthur Robloff Professor of Public Policy, you serve as the Executive Director of the Center for Tax and Budget Accountability at Roosevelt University. What does the CTBA do, and what are some of your goals as an organization? Well, thanks for having me on your podcast, uh, Ali. I really appreciate it. You know, the center sort of an odd duck from a public policy standpoint. It was initially designed to be a bipartisan group. And so we have Democrats and Republicans on our board intentionally who may not actually like or trust each other very much. But that's really good for us in our mission because it allows us to focus on what we want to accomplish, which is social and economic justice through adequately funded public sector services that are designed around best practices. So what we try to do is connect that fiscal side of the ledger to the delivery of the services and say, look, we know what the best practices are for, let's say, education, healthcare, et cetera. We we know the demographically driven demand. We know that if we do a good job funding these programs and implementing them, we will promote social and economic justice. So here's how you go about getting that done. We try to take all that partisan rancor out of the deal. Yeah. And, you know, what I applaud about these efforts and your efforts specifically is when we talk about, you know, social justice and equity and so forth, these are lofty goals. Okay. However, with your expertise, you're changing how public is funded so that the funding is more equitable to uh, those on the, you know, lower rung of socioeconomic status. That the neighborhoods that deserve most of the money actually get it. So again, kudos for that work. Yeah, no, we're we're happy to do it. I mean, you know, CTBA has been around for about 20 years now, and we've had a number of successes, which is interesting because we've always been a relatively small organization, never more than 
three, maybe four research staff, uh, and and we deal with these big systemic problems. So we're always fighting that long game, and these are the hardest policy changes to make happen. But if you make them happen, you get the biggest bang for your buck. So that's where we focus. I know, Ralph, you've had many successes through the years. Tell me what uh, specifically are some of the successes that you are most proud of. We've had a number at CTBA, uh, but I think the one that really stands out that makes us most proud was a few years ago when the state enacted the evidence-based formula for funding K-12 education. I was able to co-author that legislation as a technical advisor to State Senator Kim Lightford and State Representative Will Davis. And I worked with a gentleman named Mike Jacoby from the Illinois uh, Management Alliance as a group of school business official types in management. And this radically changed how the state of Illinois invested in K-12 education, and a radical change was really needed. Before that legislation passed, Illinois literally had the single most inequitable school funding formula in the entire country. And the day after it passed, at least the design of our new formula was the best practice in the country. So what we did, what this formula does is it ties the amount of money a school district gets to funding those evidence-based practices, which the research show actually enhance student achievement over time. And it automatically adjusts that funding to accommodate the demographically driven needs of the school district based on its low income count, its English language learner count, the number of students who are special needs. So you think about that as compared to a typical school funding formula. In most states, 35, 36 states, have school funding formulas that start with this dollar amount per kid that's set by the General Assembly, signed into law by the governor for every kid in the state. And it's usually not tied into one actual cost of educating children, just none. And that was certainly the case in <laughs> Illinois, which did have a yeah, right? not the best way to go about it. Let's let's design a school funding system that doesn't take into account the cost of education. And that's what Illinois' old system did. And worse, Illinois very much determined this base amount of school funding, this foundation amount, Mm -hmm. predicated on what its fiscal system could afford. We we are currently running an $8 billion deficit at the state of Illinois. Uh, That's about 29, 30% of what we spend on services. So the state could never afford much. So we had this highly inequitable situation. And now with the evidence-based funding formula, every school district gets a unique amount of resources identified that it needs to implement all these evidence-based practices to actually meet the educational requirements of the students it serves. It's, it's just wonderful. Yeah. Of course, it's underfunded. Well, yeah, but you know, at the same time, it is so innovative and so important and it is based on evidence. You know, a few years back when I was in Kansas, we had the same issues of inequitably funded school systems. And in fact, the Supreme Court of the state of Kansas ruled against uh, the actual funding and said, you have to make something between 400 and 500 million more available to some districts because they are so poorly funded. And nothing happened, Ralph. So where were you? Why weren't you in Kansas is my question. (laughs) 
Well, uh, you know, I was, I've never spent a lot of time in Kansas. I'll, I'll take on the dragons we have to slay here in good old Illinois right. first. Yeah. And, you know, talking about that, you know, in your free time, I know you had nothing much to do. However, you were on the transition team for Governor Pritzker back in 2018. So what were some of the biggest challenges that your committee saw for the state of Illinois and were some of the recommendations that you guys made for the path forward? You know, it's interesting. So his transition was divided into teams that focused on different substantive areas. And mm -hmm. since we had just already passed the evidence-based funding formula, the substantive area I picked was the state's fiscal system and its budget, because mm -hmm. everyone now knows Illinois has got tremendous fiscal problems. We just had the failure of the fair tax initiative that was all over the newspapers and media. But really what we found was Illinois, which, and I'm going to give some context here, we have the sixth largest population of any state in America. We have the fifth largest economy. We have a, a almost an $890 billion a year economy. That is so large. If Illinois was an independent country, we'd have the 20th largest economy in the world. And, and that said, wow. we rank at or near the bottom in spending on services. In fact, according to the National Association of State Budget Officers, we rank about 36th 37th in spending on services. Sixth largest population and ranking low in spending. And why is that? And when you dig into the data, it's very clear that over time, especially after you adjust for inflation, the state of Illinois is spending less mm -hmm. on current services today in real terms by almost $8 billion than what it spent in the year 2000 at the turn of this century. And, wow. and that's, a, that's a real wow. cause for concern, Ali, because the state spending covers four things. 95% uh, of all spending on services goes to education, and that's early childhood, K-12, and higher ed. So education, healthcare, and that's mm -hmm. primarily Medicaid, social services, and public safety, period. That's where the state spends its money. And that's what the state is unable to afford. So we quickly identified that the state's budget and fiscal system were its biggest problem because it really lacked the capacity to fund sustainably these core services that really do make a difference in people's lives across Illinois. Yeah. And, you know, most people would like to have clean water, clean air, you know, safe neighborhoods, good roads uh, for their business or for their families, and then obviously great schools. So it is that underfunding erodes what we do in the quality of life of our entire population. Now, you know, turning back to Roosevelt and our students, you know, obviously we have many students who are really interested in solving public problems and hope to make an impact that you have made as a role model for our students. So how did you first get started on public policy, Ralph? Well, you know, Ali, that's that's a funny question. I was always interested in policy first and and policy development. However, I had really no idea how to get into it. I mean, I I'm the first in my family to graduate college. You know, I'm one of those, and I came from a lower income background, and so I thought, without much guidance at all, that the way to get into public policy was to become an attorney. Uh, attorneys did that kind of thing, right? Laws are written by lawyers, right? That just made sense <laughs> to me as a kid. And so I, I did go to that law school route. And then I found 
I had some golden handcuffs. I was I was in the uh, private practice of law and and with some very significant student loans, and so I had to pay those off. But during that whole time, and even as a partner in a law firm, uh, in fact. I was. I have to admit this, uh, Ali. I mean, our universities, this wonderful university, committed to social justice. The mission is what drew me here, and I was. I was an evil corporate lawyer for about fifteen or twenty years, <laughs> doing mergers and acquisitions <laughs> and structured finance and intellectual property mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. But uh, during that whole time period, I also kept my hand in policy work. And so, you know, I did some policy work with the first Clinton-Gore administration nationally when Dawn Clark Nett, who was the first woman ever nominated for governor in our state, ran for governor. I was able to work out a deal with my law firm where I could work as her deputy issues director and had a reduced hour requirement, billable hour requirement at my law firm. (laughs) So I, I, I... have always been engaged in public policy in that way. And then back around 1999, 2000, I got interviewed by the Woods Fund, which was doing this big statewide survey. They'd been working on it for a couple of years, the Woods Fund of Chicago, of Chicago right here. And mm-hmm. they were trying to identify what was missing in, in the public policy discussion. Now, the one thing I added to the table is I said, any sense of money. I said, the fiscal side is just not covered. And as it turned out, uh, that right. was a pretty, that was like 70% of the respondents say, you know what, we, we don't know how to pay for these pro some form of fiscal policy is a problem. And uh, at the end of that sure. search, uh, their inquiry, uh, David Wilhelm, who was a former chair of the Democratic National Party, so he knew me, read my answers, and he was hired by the Woods Fund as their consultant to hire the first executive director for what was then being called the Illinois Tax Accountability Project, ITAP. Uh, That's why they did it. It had a nice little acronym, ITAP. And he said, I think you'd make a great initial executive director. I said, David, you're asking me to take a pretty significant pay cut for two years of funding at well below, not just my salary, I won't be able to hire anybody else. I'm the come to work on tax policy, which everybody hates. Am I hearing you right? And he said, yep. And I said, let me talk that over with my wife. It sounds great. And uh, my wife, who's incredibly supportive and has always been supportive of this, said, you know, Ralph, you're not happy as a, as a lawyer. You love public policy. That has always been your passion. Go do this. So I did. We mm-hmm. changed the name of the organization within a couple of years because I hated it. Uh, and, and now it's the Center for Tax and Budget Accountability. But that's how I got into it. But really, always had an interest in public policy. Yeah. And, you know, let's shift for a second on uh, what attracted you to teaching at Roosevelt University in the Master of Public Administration, the MPA program. So shift from that career to this career now. <laughs> well, you know, this is just, a, it's just such an honor to be associated with this university, Ali, and and its mission to social and economic justice. And really, you know, one of the, one of the selling points, I'll get into why I got first involved in a second, but after I started talking more and more with individuals at the university, the selling point was really that the the university from administration through the faculty actually cared about its mission. These weren't just words on a piece of paper. This university is honestly committed to social and economic justice. It was founded 
uh, to create social justice right. and uh, and ensure that no exactly. one would be not denied access to higher education because they are a woman or they are a black or they're Latino or they're an immigrant, and and to be founded on that very principle and really carry through. And then if you meet the faculty here, and they're wonderful, and you know they were all smarter than me, so I thought this is a place I wanted to be. But how I first got <laughs> pulled in was a gentleman by the name of Paul Green. Uh, he was my predecessor mm-hmm. as the Rubloff professor, and Paul Green, a well-known commentator on Illinois and Chicago politics and policy for generations, had his own radio program, took me out to lunch one time. I had just appeared on one of his shows, and he said, Martiri, with a little dismissive wave of the hand, what are you doing as an <laughs> adjunct at University of Illinois? You should be in downtown Chicago with a diverse student population and working at a university that has a social justice mission. That's what you should be. So stop being an adjunct over there at U of I and come to us. So I said, well, Paul, how could I say no to that? So I did, actually. And so that's how I first got engaged and then really never been disappointed for one second. Just 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 wonderful association with the university and its faculty and its administration. Well, you know, that, that is absolutely a great story. Now, you know, in terms of the students who aspire to be in the MPA program, for whom is the program a good fit from your perspective? Well, I think we're a really good fit for the two major kinds of students I see come through. I mean, so you have students that follow the traditional path, right? They get their undergrad degree and then they want to get that next credential and then get into the job market. And I think given our faculty and their unique areas of expertise, you know, Anna Marie Shu, I mean, what she doesn't know about government, government administrative process doesn't exist. I mean, she worked in the belly <laughs> of the beast of the federal government for over 20 years, and you just go on and on down the list with expertise in criminal law and environmental justice. So people that want it to just follow that straight academic path are going to have a lot of their theoretical or their more academic approach to, to studying these topics reinforced by folks that have their feet in on the ground and that have worked in practice. And that's a really nice thing to add. So it's great for those students. It's really, really good for folks who took a little time off between undergrad and grad school and now are entering a career where that additional credential will mean a higher pay grade where they are because our university really makes it easy for people that have full-time jobs to get that credential, we go out of our way, and our faculty is very in tune with that kind of student and really works with that that type of student to get their life experience into the classroom. And in bringing that life experience mm-hmm. into the classroom, you know, working for CPS or Metro, whatever you worked for, is so meaningful. I go back to one of the first budget classes I taught at Roosevelt. We had a police officer in the class, and most of the folks were slightly more progressive uh-huh. in their worldview than this gentleman. And, and this guy talked about his day-to-day experiences. And what's really funny is the rest of the class over the course of that semester started to be more empathetic with the challenges a police officer faces. And the police officer eyes were opened to how certain things could be perceived from a racial or an injustice standpoint. And so the, the sides were moving together. And that's that's why our university is really good for both. It creates this dynamic yeah. where 
uh, the sharing of life experience becomes part of the practical. And, you know, that's exactly what we do, what we do in a university, opening the eyes and the ears and the minds of the people who come here as our students, no matter what their background is. And they can leave with a portfolio that is more open-minded in terms of respecting others and their experiences and so forth. And, you know, importance of, talk to me a little bit about the importance of soft skills in the success of uh, the students and, you know, future leaders of our government. Just, just crucial. And, and, and anyone that's taken my course, any of our alumni will tell you that this is entirely true, is that I am a little over the top in evaluating things like writing skills, for instance. Uh, because it's really crucial to be able to express yourself in the written word in a way that's clear and concise. And the more complex the subject area that you are dealing with, the more important that communication skill becomes. But there are other skills that really get developed, I think, at Roosevelt to a high level. And, and those two, and I'm going to emphasize them, are lateral thought processes, which make you creative and critical thinking skills. And, and if you ask employers these days, what, what are they looking for in a potential hire? What they, the first thing they don't say is expertise as a X, Y, or Z. What they say is I want them to be able to solve problems. I want them to be able to think critically. I want them to be creative. And, and that's precisely the kind of academic environment that we very much encourage at Roosevelt. And really, to my peers, I've learned a lot from my fellow professors just talking to them about how they build this into the coursework. I've, I've always tried to build it into my coursework. And, and it's really, at the end of the day, what matters most. And so that frees a student in so many ways to pursue a degree in whatever she or he has a passion for. Because as long as you're developing these soft skills, as you call them, Ali, uh, these critical thinking skills, these problem solving skills, these lateral thought processes, then your degree can be in whatever, and you're still highly employable uh, because you can be trained in the substance of almost any discipline, but you cannot necessarily be trained once you're on the job in how to think critically and solve problems. No, that's great advice to the students and the future of the students as well for their future because, you know, as you know, a well-educated, well-rounded student, as you mentioned, not only is able to think clearly and solve problems, but also to write well. And I'm glad that you are spending the time on the writing skills of the students because sometimes they don't understand how important that is. And somebody says, hey, draft a memo that says such and such tomorrow. And that's your education. That's where you prove you are a Roosevelt graduate. And it can make you or break your career, as we all know. You're absolutely right. I can't tell you the number of times I'll get a request from a legislator saying, you know what? Can you give me the summary of this legislation on a one-pager? It's a 300-page piece of legislation with, let's say, a little bit of nuance and complexity. Uh, so really to make sure that you're, you, you honestly are communicating what it does substantively in a major way. You don't leave any of that major stuff out without taking up too much room. you, you got to develop a little discipline. Yeah. 
Well, I'm glad, uh, Ralph, that now you have identified successfully another career track for attorneys so that they can become really happy with their lives, you know, as you can imagine. This has been a terrific conversation. I'm so glad you are at Roosevelt University. And thank you so much for what you do every day. Well, thank you, Ali. It's a distinct honor to be associated with this university in any way. It just is. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.